Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk to Martin Camper, an associate professor of writing at Loyola University, Maryland. And I've been particularly interested in Christianity and and even more specifically in how people have used arguments to construe the Bible to mean completely different things, you know, whether it's, you know, looking at the 19th century and seeing that we have, you know, slave owners citing various biblical passages to support, you know, owning people. And on the other side, you have abolitionists who are using the same book, right? to say no, that actually, you know, the Bible supports liberation, supports, you know, does not support owning people. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And you'll hear more from Martin in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to an opportunity for graduate students, the CCDP Digital Fellows Program. The Computers and Composition Digital Press seeks graduate students to serve as CCDP Digital Fellows. As a fellow, you will assist in the creation of digital materials to promote press titles and curate social media campaigns and initiatives for the 2021-2022 academic year. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to learn firsthand the ins and outs of helping with the public-facing side of a digital press. Applicants should be graduate students with research interests in digital rhetoric, digital publishing, and or social media, experience in blogging or maintaining professional social media accounts is a plus. This is a one-year appointment with the possibility of renewal for an additional year. CCDP fellows can expect to work on two small projects per semester, like a blog post, interview, or social media campaign. Fellows are also required to participate in monthly Zoom meetings with the other CCDP fellows and the program directors. This is a volunteer role. However, this position will give the fellows experience working with a leading digital press, connecting with scholars in the field, and gaining early access to upcoming scholarship. Fellows are also encouraged to use their experience with CCDP in their own scholarship and teaching. To apply, please send a CV and a letter of interest to the CCDP Digital Fellows Program Directors, Amber Buck at ambuck at ua.edu and Jayla Warman at Warman. JJ at jmu.edu. That's W-O-U-R-M-A-J-J at jmu.edu. Applications are due on October 8th, 2021, and you can direct all your questions to Amber and Jayla. Martin Camper is Associate Professor of Writing at Loyola University, Maryland, where he teaches courses in rhetoric, writing, argument, and style. He is also director of Loyola's Center for the Humanities, which supports humanities initiatives that benefit faculty, students, and the broader community. His book, Arguing Over Texts, The Rhetoric of Interpretation, published by Oxford University Press, offers a rhetorical method for examining how people use argument to construct 
the meaning of texts. Research for his current book project, tentatively titled How the Bible's Meaning Changes, Argument and Controversy in the Christian Church, has been supported by grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the International Society for the History of Rhetoric. Camper's other work has appeared in several journals, including Philosophy and Rhetoric, the Journal of Communication and Religion, and Argumentation and Advocacy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Martin Camper. Tell me, what's your name, your title, and your role, your institution? What do you do there? So, my name is Martin Camper, and I'm an associate professor of writing at Loyola University, Maryland. And I'm also the current director of the Center for the Humanities, which is um, an institute on campus that supports humanities initiatives for faculty, for students, and the broader community. And in my uh, associate professor job, I teach a variety of classes. So unique to Loyola, or, or one of the unique things about Loyola is that we have an English department, we have a communication department, and we have a writing department. And so I'm in the writing department and that department is made up of rhetoricians and creative writers. And so we have a major, we have a minor, and I teach our rhetoric courses, writing courses. Um, we have a course on argumentation. We have a course on style, both of which I've taught. And I also teach in the honors program as well. They have a kind of first year writing and speaking course that I teach. Okay, back to talking about music. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, you said you were in a, a college band. I'm guessing that was maybe as an undergrad. Where'd you do your undergrad at? Uh, I did my undergrad at McDaniel College, small liberal arts school in, in central Maryland. Okay, I've never heard of McDaniel College. Is that, are you from Maryland? Did you choose to stay close to home? I am from Maryland. How I landed back here is completely luck. You know, when I went on the job market, uh, I applied to jobs all over the country and this is the one that worked out, so... It's, it's always like that, isn't it? It, it? it always is luck, right? That's the right word for sure for all of us. So tell me a little bit about your experience at McDaniel College. Admittedly, I've, I've never heard of McDaniel. You know, it's so I first heard about it. So first of all, it's my mother went there for two years. So I knew about it that way. But I really gave it a more serious look because it was in uh, this book called Colleges That Change Lives. And so it's like a list of, I forget how many, but you know, maybe a few dozen colleges. And so it's list, it was listed as one of those colleges. And so I was an English Spanish double major there with a writing minor. And uh, I had a great experience there. The professors, you know, a lot of small classes, the very small school. Um, uh, you know, I think when I was there, there were six, maybe 1600 students there or something like that mostly undergraduate. And I don't know, I just felt when I was at McDaniel, I got um, a lot of personalized attention, a lot of focus on my writing and my language skills. 
and, you know, just a lot of encouragement and support. And I would say, you know, that's really where I, be, you know, developed as a writer, you know, because gosh, those professors, they just, you know, gave you so much good feedback. And I also think it was in those two majors that I really became interested in, even though I never took a rhetoric class, I don't think I even knew what it was. Uh, I really became interested in language and how people interpret language, how, um, and I just, you know, and so I think that really, yeah, that kind of interest of mine that now shows up in my work was really, you know, kind of cultivated in that environment. Um, you know, I took a linguistics course, I took a translation, a Spanish translation course um, uh, in my, for my senior, English senior seminar, I was looking at how the works of Flannery O'Connor can be interpreted. So I think all of that, you know, so then I was looking at reader response theory. I mean, that was probably my first foray into rhetoric is reading some of the reader response critics. And so I think I really became interested on how texts have effects on audiences. Did you always plan to pursue graduate school? Were you pushed by those professors that brought a smile to your face at McDaniel? Uh, how did you decide to go on and pursue your master's degree? Where did you go? And how did, how did you get there? Because I know you weren't, you didn't stay at McDaniel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I all, I think I knew for a long time that I wanted to go beyond the undergraduate level. I don't think I knew that uh, I don't think I knew until like the very end that it would end up being rhetoric and composition. But I always, you know, I had a sense that I, you know, when I was in college, I really loved all the learning, but I also knew, gosh, like, I want to know more. So I think for a long time, I, I thought that I would go beyond. But I also did have professors who encouraged me to pursue, you know, graduate work. Um, and so, so, the, so yeah, so the way I kind of ended up in graduate school at a rhetoric program is interesting because, so I was actually in a position to graduate um, at the end of my junior year. And I decided that I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. I knew I was, I had taken a linguistics course and I thought I might want to be a linguist um, because I loved studying English literature, but I was much more interested in kind of the more technical aspects of language. You know, that's what, was, that's what really drew me. Um, but I also thought at that time, you know, this was a naive, you know, 20 year old, uh, I thought, well, linguists are people who like travel to remote parts of the world and study languages that a hundred people speak. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. And I just thought, well, I don't want to do that either. <laughs> and so, you know, I decided to stay on for a year. I picked up a Spanish major. So that was not in the original plan. And during that year, you know, I took the GREs and was kind of looking around at graduate schools. And so I really was trying to find a field that was kind of in between or a mixture of linguistics and literary studies. And so, you know, I found some programs that, you know, you could kind of do both. You could like study, study both. But then I also found this program at Carnegie Mellon in rhetoric. And I was like, oh, actually, and I read the description of the courses and the, and the program. And I thought, oh, this actually sounds what, I, you know, sounds like what I'm looking for. And so not, still not really knowing what rhetoric was, I applied <laughs> and, and I got in. 
and so that's where I ended up doing my master's. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Got to move to Pittsburgh, which is a really great city. Um, really enjoyed living there. And that's where I learned what rhetoric is, or at least I started to learn what rhetoric is. I guess, you know, a joke in our field is no one really knows <laughs> what rhetoric is, but at least we throw our hands up at that question <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but at least I, you know, started to discover some various definitions, different ways to define rhetoric. But I think also crucial that happened to me at Carnegie Mellon was that that's where I developed my interest in religious rhetoric. Um, I had a mentor and a couple of other uh, folks in the graduate program who were also studying religious rhetorics. There's kind of a, a small, small cohort. And that's, you know, that's, that's where I got started. So you're at Pittsburgh, you've developed this interest in religious rhetorics, which admittedly outside of the work that I've done for this podcast, the folks I've talked to that, that study religious rhetorics, I, I don't know a lot about that. So we'll have to, I'll have to learn a little bit from you today. Um, but you're at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and then you make the move back to Maryland, right, for your PhD program. Mm -hmm. How did you wind up with at Maryland? What was your dissertation project? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's enough of a question for now. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I just, so, uh, you know, kind of, kind of the Carnegie Mellon program is really interesting because it's a kind of intensive one-year master's degree. And so if you're thinking about continuing on to the PhD for the following year, you have to make that decision really quickly. Like week one. <laughs> right. like, okay, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, I just said, okay, I guess I'm, I'm going to try for it. And, you know, I applied to, you know, several, several different programs. Uh, but that semester I was taking a rhetoric of science course with James Wynn, which was great. It was a great course. And one of the articles we read in that class was by Jeannie Fonestock. And I read that article. It was the accommodating, um, accommodating scientific facts, you know, the rhetoric of, I'm, I'm messing up the title, but it's her accommodating science article, her big one, you know, it came out in the 80s. And I read it and I was just like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is the type of rhetorical analysis I want to do. And, you know, she was actually James Wynn's mentor and she was teaching at the University of Maryland. And so that's why I applied to that program. And then when I got in, I was just so excited that I would have a chance to work with her. And so that's where I ended up going. That's where I landed. And she did end up becoming my dissertation advisor. And she's just been, you know, even after I've graduated, she's been such a um, great great mentor, you know, she's really um, so, so careful and meticulous in her feedback and, you know, all, but also, you know, we're, we're full, we're full humans as well. And so I feel like, you know, she's also uh, been there, right? Like as life intersects with the profession, you know, with, you know, our professional lives. And so my dissertation project actually became the first book. And so that, that really came out of my qualifying exam. And um, I was, so 
I guess the story about the dissertation that led into the book is, as I already said, I'm interested in religious rhetorics. And I've been particularly interested in Christianity and, and even more specifically in how people have used arguments to construe the Bible to mean completely different things, you know, um, whether it's, you know, looking at the 19th century and seeing that we have, you know, slave owners citing various biblical passages to support, you know, owning people. And on the other side, you have abolitionists who are using the same book, right, to say no, that actually, you know, the Bible supports liberation, supports, you know, that does not support owning people. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then so I was hunting around for some type of rhetorical method to do that type of work. And I really couldn't find anything that I thought was satisfactory. And so I was in a classical rhetoric class taught by Vesla Valievicharska. And she made us read like all of the, you know, the, the great works from the ancient Greco-Roman period. And we didn't just read excerpts, we like read, read, you know, whole volumes. And so we had to read Cicero's De Invencione in that class, which I never read. I've read parts of it. I never read all the way through. And I stumbled upon um, uh, the section on stasis theory. And so, you know, stasis theory is just, you know, an ancient heuristic for understanding the central points of disagreement that can occur um, in any kind of debate or dispute. And I'd heard about stasis theory before. I learned about stasis theory before, you know, I, I was teaching stasis theory, but tucked away in that section on stasis theory were these other stases, these other points of disagreement that had to deal with textual interpretation that I had never heard anyone talk about before. And I said, oh, wait a second. These stases are actually the very, like the, could be the foundation or basis for this method I've been looking for to understand how people, you know, uh, un, you know, make meaning out of texts like the Bible using argument. And so I, you know, I just kind of ran with it. And the dissertation was basically reviving these different interpretive stases, as I've now called them, um, as a, and then I kind of broadened my scope, I was no longer just looking at, you know, biblical arguments, I broadened my scope to look at all types of, you know, arguments over all types of texts legal texts, um, historical texts, um, you know, uh, uh, even things like sound bites, tweets, whatever, you know, I just, you know, I really saw that this method was not just, you know, in the legal sphere as it was originally used and where, you know, the Stacey's originally came from, not just a religious sphere, but it's kind of this universal method for understanding, you know, how we make meaning out of Shakespeare even. So that's, that was the dissertation. That's where the dissertation came from. And then that became the book. And the book is titled Arguing Over Texts, The Rhetoric of Interpretation, available from Oxford University Press, which is exciting. So let's, let's recalibrate, all right, since we're going to move from the dissertation to the book. What's your main argument in the book? And then let's kind of walk through those first three chapters together and talk about some of the analysis you do and why you do it. Great. So the, the main argument of the text is that stasis theory, in particular, these interpretive stases, which I'm happy to outline in a moment, um, 
offer rhetoricians or any scholars interested in how textual meaning is constructed, uh, it offers a method for examining, you know, the argumentative mechanics of that textual meaning construction. And, and so that's so that's really the central argument of the book um, is making a case for this method. And you mentioned that you wanted to define or outline interpretive stasis. The yeah, so yeah, right. And so again, you know, stasis theory is this heuristic for understanding disagreement. And so these interpretive stases, which were originally called the legal stases because they kind of came out of a legal context where, you know, courtroom speechwriters really were trying to find a way, and this is in ancient Greece and Rome, they really, you know, were trying to find a way, okay, we have laws, we have wills, we have contracts, we have all these legal documents. How do we use them to our advantage in a legal case? And so they wanted to find a systematic way of coming up, you know, this is invention, you know, of inventing arguments to support a case on either side based on these legal documents. And so, you know, the book kind of takes the stasis they came up with and kind of, you know, massages them. And so the book presents kind of six different interpretive stasis. The first, um, you know, the, well, the, the first one in the book is ambiguity. So whenever, you know, we have a word or a phrase that has kind of two different readings, two different ways to take it. Uh, and I'm sure as we go through the first few chapters, we'll talk about some examples. The second is definition, where it's not so much we have two different readings of a word, but there's different shades of meaning of a word, right? Kind of those more finer distinctions. And the next we have letter versus spirit, which is a term we're probably all familiar with. You know, if we ever, you know, pay attention to the Supreme Court, right? There's always this, you know, are we following the letter of the law? Are we following its spirit? And so that's really, you know, are we uh, adhering to this a strict interpretation or are we trying to think about something broader? Um, that maybe even negates, you know, maybe we're actually going against what the letter says um, because we think we're in line with the author's intention. The next one, the fourth one is conflicting passages. And that's where you have a text and two parts of it seem to disagree. And so how do you resolve that disagreement so the text remains coherent? Uh, the sixth one is assimilation. Uh, this is where we have a text, you know, passage in a text, and we go beyond it. So we say, yes, we understand the meaning of the text says this. Now, here's the implications of what that text means, perhaps in a new situation. And then the last stasis that's discussed in the book is jurisdiction which anyone familiar with stasis theory will recognize as one of the other stases, it's really kind of a metastasis. So in jurisdiction, we're not arguing about the interpretation of a text. We're arguing about what are the necessary conditions for producing a legitimate interpretation of that text. And so who has the right to interpret a text? Um, what counts as the text? And you know, what retort, you know, what hermeneutical or interpretive method is appropriate for the text, things like that. So those are the six stases. What's a metastasis? Yeah, I mean, I use the term metastasis. Um, I, I don't know how common it is, but I would I would define a metastasis as okay, you're kind of stepping 
you're kind of looking at the procedural concerns around the conversation or disagreement, right? So you and I could be debating something like, um, I don't know, nuclear power, right? And we're going, going, going. And then I can actually kind of pause the conversation, step back into this metastasis and say, wait a second, are either of us scientists? If we're not scientists, we're not really qualified to talk about this debate. So that's the meta part of it, right? You're kind of stepping out of the debate itself and talking about how the debate should proceed. One of the things I really found interesting about your book happens early on in -hmm. chapter one. Mm -hmm. You begin with a debate over one of the leaked 2009 climate gate emails. Why did you choose to focus your analysis early on on that specific phenomenon? And what does the analysis reveal? So when I was writing the book, it was really important to me that as part of the argument that these interpretive stases offer a general uh, method for understanding, you know, arguments over the meaning of text, uh, it was really important for me to pick a diversity of examples to kind of show that universality. Um, And, you know, that example that you're talking about, you know, with these leaked climate gate emails, where, you know, some people said that they showed that climate scientists were fudging the data uh, to make their case and that, you know, they were exaggerating how bad climate change was, which of course, you know, the recent uh, report, you know, IPCC, IPCC report shows that that's, you know, not, not the case. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I really wanted to begin the book with an example that anyone would kind of get uh, the weight of, right? That's a weighty example, right? Because absolutely, when those emails were leaked, um, it had a big effect on the credibility of climate scientists. And it really helped fuel the climate change skeptic movement, right? This was their evidence that climate scientists were basically lying to the public. Right. And so I, so I wanted my readers to know, you know, textual interpretation is not some arcane thing you know, that scholars in like dark libraries, you know, deal with. This is something that matters for all of our lives and has major implications, um, not only for society, but also for the planet. Absolutely. And so, so yeah, so I, so that case, um, and if I, let me just actually read, because it's always good to actually uh, use the actual language. So the, the thing I, the, the leaked email I focus on uh, is a line that comes from climate scientist uh, uh, Joan, Phil Jones's um, email, and in this and in this email he has this line that says, "I've just completed Mike's nature trick trick of adding in the real temps to each series for the last twenty years, i.e., from 1981 onwards, and from 1961 for Keith's." to hide the decline. And so that there's a lot of kind of scientific jargon there, but basically what Michael Mann, I mean, what Phil Jones is saying that he's using this method that another climate scientist, well, the climate scientists used to bridge the gap between two sets of data we have about the climate. Um, and so in order to study climate um, before modern thermometers or before uh, we need, we look at tree ring data. Scientists look at tree ring data. And so, you know, up to a certain point, the tree ring data 
is actually very accurate in terms of what it tells us about global temperatures. But at around 1960, that data um, no longer is, um, uh, is no longer accurate. And so what this trick is, it kind of links together the tree ring data with um, measurements from modern you know, temperature instruments. And so it's basically a way of like suturing the two graphs. So that's, yeah. the, that's, that's a trick, right? And so, and so it hides the decline because the problem that tree ring data is actually shows that temperatures go down after 1960. And so that's the hide the decline part. However, without further context, that one line, I'm using a trick to hide the decline, that sounds pretty nefarious. Sure. Right? And so what the analysis shows um, is that first of all, the kind of dispute that um, circulated or, or centered around this line was in the stasis of definition. And the definitional, uh, the words whose definition was in question is that word trick. Because trick has a few different meanings in English, right? Um, it means some type of device more generally, but it can also mean uh, in this, in the scientific context, it can just mean like a device that's used um, to do something, right? Um, like I've, I've got a trick to, uh, I don't know, like seal a leak in a roof or something like that, right? It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you have this solution, right, to this problem, right? And maybe, you know, it's a fairly, fairly easy one. But then there's also this other definition of trick that suggests um, deceit, deception, right? I'm going to, you know, play a trick on someone and pull the wool over their eyes. And so uh, the climate change skeptics used the second definition, you know, that this was kind of the nefarious trick. And the scientists argued, no, we just meant trick as, you know, a solution to a problem. I think it's a smart example to begin with. And the reason I thought about it, bringing it up was because it resonates today, right? Obviously still like, I mean, 2009, 12 years later, even the book, you know, four years later, it resonates today. But as you were talking, I noticed that it kind of comes at a moment where we have a rise in I'm going to just say this skeptic culture, right? Like 2009, we have this climate gate on the heels of the birther movement um, and things like that. All of this obviously also coincides with what else, Martin, the rise of social media. Okay. So um, I wonder like, how does this moment in time that you're focusing on, right? resonate with you today like so 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 many years in the in the future right from from 2009 and from 2017 when the book is published i i mean i think the arguments in the book are are are, are more relevant now i mean i think you're right to point out the fact that you know this coincides with the rise of social media so in 2009 blogs were very popular. I don't know if anyone remembers blogs, but they were, you know, <laughs> blogs, blogs were kind of the thing, right? A lot of people have blogs and a lot of this um, climate change skepticism was being disseminated through blogs. A lot of this discussion and interpretation about these leaked emails, including this one in particular, that was all circulating on blogs. And then, you know, soon after Facebook 
right? And then Twitter. So, I, and I think, you know, I think text, you know, text documents have really, you know, written the written word that's proliferated, you know, with the rise of the internet, web 2.0, social media, uh, and at least two broad ways. The first of all, we're all just producing all of these texts all the time that live on the internet that are easily searchable, right? And so when you think about some of these controversies over celebrity tweets, right, where someone has gone through and found a tweet from several years ago, you know, and then pulled it up, right? I mean, I think that's, that's, that's textual interpretation, right? That's all about the text. Um, but I think in a similar vein, um, we have access to a lot more text than we did before, right? So imagine um, if those emails had been leaked, let's say by a journalist 10 years earlier or, or 15 or 20 years earlier in, mm -hmm. in the early 90s, mm -hmm. it may have been reported on in a newspaper article, but would it have gotten the same traction? I don't think so, right? And so I think the fact that, you know, and there's, a, by the way, you can look up all these emails. When they were leaked, they were put on a server you know, that's searchable and, you know, you can find them all online. Um, and so, so first of all, people don't have as tight of control over the text they produce, right? Not only are we putting stuff out there in the public sphere, there are also hackers, you know, who can hack into our emails and leak things we didn't intend for the public, which I think is part of the issue here is that there's a lot of shorthand being used because it's scientists talking to scientists. Um, and, and then those texts can be quickly disseminated beyond the intentions of the author. So I really think um, in some ways, textual interpretation matters even more now. Not that it never didn't. So I think you're onto something and I agree with you. And I think one of the main reasons it's more important now than ever is ambiguity. And that's where you take us right in chapter two. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. And in Chapter 2, you, you actually classify three types of amb ambiguity, and your focus is on Phyllis Wheatley's night. 1768 poem on being brought from Africa to America, a poem that I have taught in <laughs> literature classes back in another life, for sure. Uh, you were a musician. I was a poetry teacher and a literature teacher. So tell me a little bit about the three um, 
types of ambiguity that you outline or classify, and why was it important for you to focus on the work of Phyllis Wheatley that is admittedly older? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, so ambiguity, again, so that's a stasis where we have a word or phrase in a text that elicits two divergent readings. Um, and, <clears throat> and so, some, so for example, um, if, if I said, oh, I'm trying to think of, you know, now I have all these examples. Like, so one example that's in the book is, you know, the department is willing to pay for two additional speakers, mm-hmm. right? And so the word speakers is amb- ambiguous in that context because uh, we don't know if the original writers was meaning sound equipment, like two other speakers for some event, or if they're talking about two guest lecturers, right? right? So that's an example of ambiguity. And that's example of the first type of ambiguity, lexical ambiguity. And so this is whenever we have a single word, um, sometimes a phrase that acts as a single word that has these two divergent meanings. Um, The second type of ambiguity is syntactic ambiguity. And so that's really about when a grammatical form or structure can be read in two different ways. <clears throat> and the example that I use in, well, I use a few different examples in the book, but uh, the, I think a really good example that I use is this um, newspaper headline that says, squad helps dog bite victim. Um, and in that case, the grammar is such that it's not clear if this, the police squad is <laughs> helping the victim of the dog bite or if somehow they're joining the dog. That's, that's a good the one. Person, right? And so, you know, this type of ambiguity happens quite a bit in newspaper headlines, sometimes on purpose, um, because you have compression of language, right? Uh, and so when there's less context, there's, there are fewer words, um, there's, more, there's more of a chance that we have ambiguity. Um, and then the last type is pragmatic ambiguity. And there I'm really, you know, all these terms are coming from linguistics, but all pragmatic ambiguity means is that the relationship between the word or phrase in the text and the real world uh, is, is, is ambiguous, right? It could go two different ways. And so, um, you know, I talk about one example is, and this is actually a reference to a student where I said, Gene likes, you know, writing or something like that. And so if there are two people named Gene in the room, uh, it's not clear which Gene we're talking about, right? And mm-hmm. so that would be pragmatic ambiguity, right? There's nothing ambiguous. We know it's a name, but we don't know who that name applies to. Mm-hmm. And so any type of referential ambiguity would fall under the category of pragmatic. Now, the main example in the book is uh, Phyllis Wheatley poem, on uh, coming to America from Africa. Um, it's, a, it's one of her most famous works. Mm-hmm. It's also one of her most discussed works in literary, uh, literary circles. And um, it's also a poem where she's gotten some criticism. It's a very short poem, um, but in it, she seems to be grateful for her enslavement. For those who don't know who Phyllis Wheatley is, just in case, you know, so she was, kidnapped and brought to kidnapped from Africa and brought to America as a slave when she was about eight or nine years old. Um, but she wound up um, in the possession of um, a kind of rich white New England family that was fairly well to do. 
And apparently um, she was given access to, to books, to writing, and she learned, she was a prodigy. I mean, she was a genius. I mean, she learned Latin and English, you know, I think by the time she was a teenager and she ended up producing these really remarkable works of poetry in classical style that um, astounded, you know, her white audiences in part because, you know, they didn't really think, unfortunately, that black people were capable of those types of literary feats. Um, but in this particular poem, uh, she seems to be grateful for her enslavement because it's through coming to America as a slave that she became a Christian, okay? And so that's, you know, problematic for all the obvious reasons. Um, and so, she, so, so one of the things that, so I, th I think maybe perhaps until recently, although I think this is still the prevailing critical opinion, uh, that's been the interpretation. Um, you know, she's grateful for enslavement because she be, became saved. But some literary critics have pushed back against this interpretation, and they've done so by looking at a few lines in the text and noticing, wait a second, there's some ambiguity going on here. You know, like read one way, she does seem to be making this really problematic argument, but read another way, she actually seems to be critiquing the slave system and actually pointing out the hypocrisy of her Christian captors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the lines that I look at is the last two, the final couplet, which says, remember Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic strain. Um, and it's not clear in that first phrase, remember Christians, Negroes, um, who she is telling to remember. Um, if, uh, is she telling just the reader to remember? In that case, she's saying both Christians and Negroes are as black as Cain, right? And so she's kind of saying, you think we're sinners, actually you're sinners too, right? You also, and then that also means, you know, that all together they can be saved, right? Um, and so there are other, you know, ambiguities, you know, she has these, you know, perhaps puns or double entendres um, on the words dye, uh, which could be kind of the dye used for cotton um, and, and, so, and some other things as well. So I wanted to focus on that example because I, well, there were a few different reasons, um, but one of the things that I wanted to do in this book is I wanted to center voices of people from the margins. Uh, and so many of the examples in the book come from controversies that, you know, deal with marginalization in one way or another. Mm. And it was really, you know, I, I think as, as a scholar who has, you know, at least a couple of marginalized identities, it was really important for me that I wasn't using this ancient Greco-Roman theory just to talk about white people or, or, or men or straight people, right? It was really important for me to, to actually show that this is helpful for us in the larger project of turning attention to these overlooked groups. And um, I think it was also important to me to show that um, their interpretive stasis apply to literature, they apply to poetry, they can help us understand how people interpret poetry. And I also, you know, 
I think just Phyllis Wheatley is just a fascinating historical character. She was the first Black person to publish a book in this country. And so, you know, I'm really glad that I was able to get her into the book. One of your post-book project projects turned into an article for philosophy and rhetoric called A Theory of Fantype Dissociation. What is dissociation and what is this article about? So that article actually kind of started with the book. So there's a section in the chapter on letter versus spirit where I'm using Kime Perlman and Orbex Titeka, the authors of The Big Tome, The New Rhetoric, which is this mid 20th century revival of uh, the rhetorical tradition um, for modern analytical ends. And they, one of the most original um, and significant contributions of this book is this concept of dissociation. Uh, it's kind of a, a technical term that you know, kind of takes a couple of moments to wrap your mind around, but the idea is that um, we have these, <clears throat> you can always take any particular term and you can separate that term into two different terms. And um, into two different terms and that those terms remain um, interacting and in a hierarchical relationship. So um, letter versus spirit is one of those sets of terms. So dissociation explains these binaries, things like, um, you know, letter versus spirit, um, individual, collective, um, you know, thought, you know, fact versus opinion, right? We have these binaries in our culture. And so dissociation says, oh, all these binaries have something in common. They're taking some type of messy concept and breaking them down, right? And valuing one over the other. Okay. And so letter versus spirit is one of those dissociations. And so um, a theory of fan type dissociation attempts to understand, okay, if we have something like textual meaning, we break it into letter versus spirit, um, can we break the new terms down any further? Mm. And so those, so those, that's what a fan type dissociation is. It's when you've taken a singular term, you've broken it down once into two terms, and then you break one of those terms down again. Um, and so, so that particular article is exploring that concept Again, I kind of survey a wide range of examples. Um, so for example, uh, I look at how fan type dissociation plays into colorism, which is a form of racism where people are valued based on the hue of their skin. And I analyze that as being a fan type of the uh, racist dissociation of people into you know, groups. So specifically white and black. And so then the term black is dissociated further into light-skinned and dark-skinned. And so it just reduplicates that hierarchy by saying, you know, that light-skinned people, and, and this is true in any, you know, any, any race <clears throat> of, you know, people who aren't white, um, light-skinned is seen as better, is more valued, and darker skin is, is less valued. Um, and, you know, I look at, a, you know, a few, few others as well. I talk about how fan types dissociation have to do with polarization um, and that what polarization is, it's a series of fan types where we divide ourselves from another group. <clears throat> 
And then in order to maintain our own purity, we keep pure, you know, we keep saying, okay, this is my group. Oh, but those people are too close to the other group. So they're not a part of us. And you keep splitting yourself off until you get a more, a more pure, a pure group. And of course you can hear all types of, you know, problematic overtones in that. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's what fan type dissociation is about. So, you know, I'm really, I was really happy about that article and, <clears throat> and um, it just goes to show that in a single book project, you can have all these other projects that spin off from it. One of the things I appreciate that you said earlier, and that's evident through your CV, through the work that you do, is that you are interested in uh, bringing to the foreground uh, voices that are so often on the margins and analyzing the lived experiences of these people. And one of the articles that you published in Argumentation and Ad- Argumentation and Advocacy with Zach Fector. Um, is called Enthymomatic Free Space, the Efficacy of Anti-Stop and Frisk Arguments in the Face of Racial Prejudice. And this article was the winner of the 2020 Daniel Rohrer Memorial Outstanding Research Award from the American Forensics Association. How did this article come to be? What's your main argument? And what do you hope folks take away if they were to read your work here? So my co-author was actually one of my students, one of my undergraduate students. Oh, really? Okay, well, then I have to ask, how did that, tell us a little bit about that, because I know that instructors that listen to the podcast probably are jumping at opportunities to work with students in that way. Yeah, so this is the first time I've ever collaborated with um, a scholarly article, uh, collaborating on a scholarly article with a student. Uh, an undergraduate student, because, you know, our department doesn't have any graduate students. Okay. Um, and uh, he was taking my introduction to rhetoric class, writing 220, and they had a rhetorical analysis assignment. And he came to me uh, one day and he was like, you know, Dr. Camper, I just read this really interesting article by these two psychologists about anti-stop and frisk rhetoric and how um, they were giving their test subjects anti-stop and frisk arguments and like it made them uh, want to support stop and frisk more. And then he also had a couple of these um, flyers or pamphlets, uh, really flyers or fact sheets, um, anti-stop and frisk fact sheets from New York City that um, during the time that stop and frisk was uh, the law there, you know, a major policing tactic. And so, you know, he worked on his paper, you know, and he did well on it. But, you know, as we were talking, I thought, you know, this project has legs. Like you are stumbling upon something that is just more than an undergraduate paper. Like this is, this is, this is important, you know. That's just so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he, you know, very, very, very smart students. Um, he's now, um, well, I, he's, Gosh, my timeline is so off, but yes, he, he is now finishing up his master's at UT Austin uh, in communication. That's and funny. so he, so we just started working. We decided after he finished the course to keep working on this article. And we wanted to investigate, you know, why is it, you know, because the psychological research, you know, they weren't rhetoricians. And so they could kind of make guesses about what was triggering 
this effect, right? Reading these anti-stop and frisk arguments and turning people into pro-stop and frisk people. And so we really thought, well, the key is the language. And so um, we used um, Aristotle's theory of the enthymeme uh, and along with some more modern um, takes on the enthymeme to analyze the argument structure of a series of anti-stop and frisk um, public announcements. And what we discovered was the way that these arguments were shaped were inviting the prejudices, the racial prejudices of readers into the process of thinking about stop and frisk. Mm. Um, largely because many of them uh, as their most prominent feature would say, you know, black men and Latino men are many times more likely to be uh, stopped and frisked by the police. Um, and then from there, they would work towards this is, you know, an injustice and it needs to stop. But for most of us living in America, you know, e even those of us who see ourselves as, you know, racially progressive, just because of the kind of white supremacy that kind of pervades everything, um, our initial kind of subconscious reaction might be fear. You know, it might be um, not that this is an injustice, but oh yeah, you know, black and brown people are being stopped more because they're more criminal, right? Um, and so we, we hypothesize that what's really going on is that the way they're making this argument is stirring up that racism. So, um, so that, so that's, yeah. And so the argument of the, the piece is then that when we make anti-racist arguments, we have to um, understand the beliefs and assumptions our audiences are bringing to that argument, right? And we can't assume an ideal audience, right? We have to factor in the racism. Uh, so that we craft arguments that don't stir that up and that hopefully stir up reasoning that's disconnected from those um, pernicious beliefs. What was the name of um, the band you were in in college? And what was the name uh, of the album you released? Oh, no. <laughs> you, you can decline the answer. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it feels like a different life. Um, yeah. We were called mile zero because uh the other I, I was one of the principal songwriters the other principal songwriter and guitarist um we the high so we lived at the kind of end of an expressway that led away from baltimore and so at the beginning of the expressway is a mile marker zero and so we passed that you know every time we were you know leaving the city or you know or parts around the city to go back home and uh, the title of the album was called Silent Planet. So it was kind of a kind of a brooding kind of, you know, late adolescent, you know, moody type album. But, you know, I'm, st I'm so proud of it. As you should be. Martin, thanks so much for sitting with me for an interview. It was so great to talk with you and to learn from you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Martin Camper, and I hope we can get together at the next RSA. If you would like to be featured on the Big Rhetorical Podcast, reach out. 
We're now booking for season six and seven, and we want to hear from you. Visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at The Big Red. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Airtone, and The Grapes.